up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring. And this one, I'm telling you, is not going to be boring. We have a legend in the field of strength and conditioning, specifically in baseball. And yeah, Coach Eric Cressy, thank you very much for coming on and spending some time with us today. Um, you have a very busy life working in Major League Baseball. You're in the middle of the season, so... Thank you for being on the show, and uh, anybody who doesn't know you, quick intro. Uh, for sure. Um, thank you for having me, first off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the 15-second elevator pitch. Um, I work as a strength conditioning coach, uh, both in the private sector and in Major League Baseball. Uh, we have two training facilities, one in Massachusetts, one in Florida, um, where there's a heavy kind of baseball emphasis, and then I also serve as director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. Um, in addition to that, I'm you know, kind of writer, consultant, speaker, um, got my hands on a lot of different things. I uh, host my own podcast as well, more kind of in the baseball yeah. realm. And then I'm a, a husband and a, and a dad of three daughters. So it's, it's, things are never dull. Anybody that's listening and like, oh, I don't have any time to do anything, go ahead and rewind that by 30 seconds and just shut up. Like, re-listen to that, and that's impressive, man. Um, one of the first questions I have for you is I'll also plug, I mean, Sturdy Shoulders was one of the best things that I – got during COVID. Um, it really helped me and my ATs out for any of our quarterbacks. You know, we worked, I worked specifically in football for the longest time and it was an awesome resource for me. Um, so I've been following you for a while in the private world. What made you decide to actually go into, you know, major league baseball? Yeah. I mean, baseball kind of found me. Um, interestingly enough, I was a, a, a tennis player growing up and had a bunch of shoulder problems myself. Um, kind of ended my tennis career, to be honest. I mean, I, I worked at a, at a tennis club for eight summers. I strung rackets, gave lessons, you name it. And then, sure enough, um, when I decided strength edition was for me and, and I initially went to the private sector, I picked up a lot of odds and ends just on how to take care of my own shoulder. I managed to avoid, avoid short, uh, surgery with it. And so when I got to the private sector and you know started working with a few baseball guys, I I really realized that they were an underserved population. Um, you know, they kind of always just got like the, the foo-foo rotator cuff band program, or they got like the, hey, just do what the football guys do. And, you know, there was a happy medium where you could push guys hard as long as you were aware of the, you know, the true functional demands of the sport and what unique adaptations they had. So um, just kind of found this little, you know, kind of niche in the industry. And, and over the course of time, we, we carved it out more and more and became much more specialized. Um, you know, so that was at the time high school guys, and then you know they became college guys. College guys become pro guys. You know, they've got agents, they've got teammates, and the referrals. You know, kind of just started coming to, to build us to what we are today, where it's you know it's not just strength conditioning, it's skill development. There's physical therapy, there's massage therapy, there's all these different uh, layers to it. With you know, fully like built out analytics slash tech department. Um, and then on, on the you know kind of major league side of things, you know as you know time wore on and um, you know we got more and more results with guys in the private sector and you know had more and more high profile players and, and really you know a lot of younger players that were getting selected in the amateur draft, you know and our relationships with major league organizations strengthened. Um, you know, over the years I had kind of several offers uh, more for consulting roles just because you know I don't think very often they look at you as an employee when you have your own gig like that um, particularly ones that has some momentum on its mm -hmm. side so um, I actually consulted for the Minnesota Twins um, for 2018-2019 uh, really more in just like a, an opportunity to like test the waters you know dip my foot in the shallow end and see what kind of role I would, I would play in professional baseball and if it was a good fit 
Um, and so that was a you know a compelling opportunity. The Yankees reached out um, at the end of 2019, and um, we were able to work something out where I actually have a much broader role where I oversee nutrition, I oversee strength conditioning, and, and some of the manual therapy initiatives in our organization, and really kind of have my hands in a lot of different departments. Um, so this is my fourth fourth year with the org, and you know there's everything from doing amateur draft stuff. You know, spending. I'm, I'm with the team right now on a road trip, so um, it's just uh, it's fun because you get to ex- be exposed to a lot of really smart people, lost a lot of across a lot of different departments, and really learn how all the pieces fit together. That's unbelievable. There's so many thoughts that I had with that. Number one, a former athlete of mine who then became a colleague uh, here at Iowa, Mark Weissman. He's now the director of minor league baseball strength and conditioning for the Cubs. So like he was, I just heard a podcast that he had, and he was talking about how you know, that world little bit works and it's unbelievable what those guys are doing. And then like the, how often do you have to be communicating with them just in terms of like, if somebody gets called up, somebody gets called down to just be communicating all the time, like in how, for anybody that's listening, like, okay, how can they take that principle to then apply it into their high performance world? Cause you've got even more moving pieces. Yeah. yeah. So there, there are a couple ways I'll answer that. The first thing is you, you mentioned communication and it, it's paramount. Like you, you have to make sure that you build out a staff of, of effective communicators, because if you have someone that, that doesn't line up with that initiative, like scale is impossible. And so, you know, if you're in the college setting, right, you get 30 athletes that come into your weight room, you know, their schedule throughout the day, their class schedule, their practice schedule, their lifting schedule, all that stuff. Baseball is different, right? So we have, you know, major league, triple A, double A, high, low A, then you have your FCL team at your complex, you have a Dominican Academy. Mm -hmm. So you're really, you know, in our department, you you effectively got dozens of staff members across not just multiple zip codes, but different like states, different countries. Um, And so there's a lot of moving parts. And that's really just speaking to the athletes, right? You also have you know, front office that need to make decisions from afar with respect to roster management and things like that. You have injured athletes who may be going for second opinions with doctors on the other side of the country. Um, you know, you have vendors that you're communicating with as you're, you know, we've, we've actually changed out some of our minor league affiliates. So outfitting weight rooms at different stadiums and doing renovations. Um, there's always a lot of things going on. It's just that, that's, I think, what a lot of people don't understand about professional baseball is just how big organizations are where um, you know, you basically have your roster limits domestically of 180 players. So that's effectively your minor league players in the U.S. Then you have your 26-man major league roster. So you're at 206. And then you've got a number of players that are on either the, the 60-day or the full season IL that don't kind of count against those numbers. So that might be, you know, 215 players. And then you have another 90 at your, your Dominican Academy, which you're allowed to have. So before you know it, you're dealing with 300 athletes. So where that leads to is my second point is that it's never just about being smart. Like you can go to every seminar you want, learn every nuanced technique. For me, like where the rubber meets the road on whether I'm effective at my job is how well I teach and how well I, you know, I, I select and mentor good staff that help to, you know, carry out the, the vision that I have for our department and, you know, how will I communicate it. So it's, um, it's really all about scale in professional sports. It's not, it's not okay just to be progressive. Everybody can be progressive. If they read another book or go to another seminar, it's all about how do you make it work for a kid that you may have never met that's in the Dominican Republic that we just signed it, you know, at age 17, and we've got to help him get to where he needs to be. So. Yeah, listening to that and hearing not only just how big the roster is, but like you said, you're going to have some scale between that 17-year-old kid and then – I mean, shoot, like, 
Albert Pujols is in the league. Is he still or used to, like uh, he's, he's he's commentating now, but he's not but, far. Yeah. Okay, so he not far. Like that's my point. Is like you could have a forty year old dude in baseball because you know it's not as uh, you don't get there's no contact. So yep. there's still difficulties, and I'm not here saying like baseball the schedule that'll wear on you first of all. But the fact that you could have a seventeen year old kid and a forty four year old kid, yeah. like. Yeah. It's a big deal because you know you and I both know youth athletic development. You get an untrained seventeen-year-old. It's it's not a hard program to write. No, it's actually much more about like reaffirming the importance of consistency, nutrition, sleep, all these different things. But you have to escalate development because there's there's a benefit to getting that kid to the big leagues at twenty-one. You know what I mean? That's a that's a really big deal where he's going to deliver a ton of value for the major league roster if you can accelerate his development. Whereas like if you're talking about a kid that might not play baseball after college, like you you have got a little bit more of an on-ramp <clears throat> and you know of that and like the private sector the game schedules is very very different like a high school kid um you know like we have we have 21 year old players playing major league baseball right now that are playing 162 game season like they're, they're not it's not common that you get somebody that young but like you know you look at like a Juan Soto I think Soto came up before his 20th birthday yeah he was young he was special and you know he's been a very durable player and you know he's been out there and playing very consistently but like you know he's pretty physically mature there there are a lot of like 19 year olds that are still untrained kids that are still getting to know their college strength coach for the first time so you, you always have to hit it on an individual level which becomes extra challenging when you have that many guys so you and i were talking off our listeners you, we were talking off air because my cousin steve ceshek is the reason you know we we connected because steve was one of your athletes um i remember one of the times i was watching steve play in Florida or Miami at the time and then um, waiting for him to leave the, the clubhouse and uh, Stanton was leaving the locker room at the same time and you want to talk about physically blessed I was like okay that dude I'm like I'm 6'3 played college football weighed 300 now I walk at like 245 and I'm like looking up at this guy like yeah God put him on this earth to go hit baseballs like specimen um, but then you also you talked about college baseball and one of the questions that I had was um, I never re- and maybe it was just some of the places that I was at, but I never realized how much college ba- college baseball athletes like they get after it. They're almost one of like they're slanging and banging in there. And then Weissman just the other day talked about it, um, and Stevie did too about how like you know once you kind of make it to the pros, it's more about maintaining. And I guess my question is, at what point does the switch flip from like, hey, we got to clang and bang to like, okay, I got to make sure I'm maintaining or whatnot throughout that development for college into professional? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the big leaguers come in all shapes and sizes, right? And, and baseball is a unique sport because sometimes it's not just raw athleticism that, that gets you there. Um, sometimes it's it's traits, you know, it's characteristics, um, you know, and in some cases, guys are really hypermobile, right? In some cases, they got, you know, a freaky long middle finger that helps them to throw a better cutter or something like that. Um, they're deceptive in their delivery. And yes, the game, don't get me wrong, is trending in the direction of, I mean, it's average fastball velocity has gone up by like 4.6 miles per hour over the last 20 years. Like you don't see as many soft throwing, just locate 87 pitchers in baseball anymore unless they're, you know, absolutely blessed with an amazing changeup and all this stuff. But um, you know, there is a level of athleticism that needs to be present. Um, I'll speak from my experience, and, and let me first preface this by saying that I, I was a competitive powerlifter for a long time. You know, I, I lifted some big boy weights. I have every reason to be emotionally attached to lifting really heavy stuff because I, I did it, and it, it came somewhat naturally to me. And I think we all have our inherent biases 
early in our career when you program. Um, I, I think you'd be sorely disappointed at what some of the max strength numbers are on a lot of your favorite major league superstars. Um, just because the season is, is so long. Um, I, to be honest, I think the, probably the same thing would happen if you looked at a lot of NFL players. Um, 100%. College to the pros. What's really interesting, um, so I do a lot of work with Proteus. Um, you know, we, we piloted a lot of their equipment. I'm, I'm an investor on the company, full disclosure. And what we looked at is just kind of how force production changes. And we saw some really substantial changes from high school to college players. Clearly, being stronger, more powerful takes you from high school to college. You know, it, it's a differentiator, right? And that's, you know, a kid learning to hit a ball, you know, 103 off the, off the barrel or something like that. Um, versus when you go from college to pro, there is very, very little change. It, it really comes down to skill development, like how well you recognize pitches, um, how well you locate fastballs, whatever it is. And, and what's actually interesting, there was a good study that literally just came out, it actually maybe pre-publication, that actually shows that force plate characteristics are higher in minor league players than they are in major league players. Average fastball velocity at one point was, was higher in low A than it was in the big leagues. That may have changed. Um, I think, you know, it may in part be due to the fact that a lot of hard throwers get hurt young and don't actually make it to the big leagues. So there's maybe an, an almond natural selection there. But what, what it speaks to is this overwhelming characteristic that our job is to build, you know, a really high-performing athlete. And then to some degree, we have to be able to just recognize that we need to get the hell out of the way. And we need to not mess them up. Um, and I think particularly in a sport like, like baseball where rotation is king, there are certain athletes that are going to really work, have to struggle to, to preserve their rotation if we load them too much. Um, you know, I, I can think of a lot of really prevalent examples. And the classic example I see is the, the kid that goes to college, right? He's 18 years old. He's moderately trained. He gets there. He puts 150 pounds on his, on his squat, gains 20 pounds. He goes from 88 to 93. He's feeling amazing. And he gets progressively worse in his junior and his senior year doing the same program. Usually what happens is he gets more banged up. The window of adaptation closes. In many cases, he's like a, a wide in for sternal angle guy who just loses his rotational capacity. And those are the guys that honestly we sometimes thrive with, whether it's you know pro ball or the private sector, where we get them away from that. They, they basically get out of a weight room with just a bunch of barbells and squat racks, and they get into a place where they can rotate. We attack medicine ball stuff really aggressive. We, we use the Proteus way more. And you'd be shocked. Like we have, we have pro guys that come back from a season. Um, and, and I saw guys, the 2020 season, that was, was really, really eye-opening for me because we had guys that were highly trained going into it. Um, they, they continued to get after it during the pandemic. And then they had a 60-game season. So we had guys that came back from that season that were, you know, trap bar deadlift and 450 for five on their first day of the off season. It was like they had never left. It was the shortest season. And so you're like, all right, now what do we do now that we have a semi-normal off season before the 21 season? So a lot of those guys, we, we looked at where they were on this force velocity curve. We trained a ton more speed strength, absolute speed there. Um, you know, and, and guys took off. Uh, 21 was probably like the biggest velocity improvements that we saw. And I think part of it was that a lot of the velocity numbers were down in 2020 because yeah. of fans in the stands and guys just didn't have that adrenaline. But it was a very big eye-opener. Like, hey, we don't need to bang our heads against the wall. Getting guys strong is easy. It's figuring out how much strength is enough. <clears throat> and then, you know, once we've, we've filled that bucket, move on and do some other stuff. So I, I think you'd be shocked at how many guys – um, in professional baseball can can lift hard for the first month of the off season and then just be athletic the rest you know maybe you just tickle that 
you know, max strength thing, one set of four every three weeks, and, and you can actually preserve strength really, really well. And we've certainly seen that with a lot of our, um, our measures on more veteran athletes. You don't have to beat them up like you do a, a untrained, you know, 20 year old who's still trying to like get those adaptations in the first place. Strength sticks around so easily. Um, I've been amazed at that in my own training career, but um, I just realized there's there's a lot more that makes athletes successful. So, you know, big big priorities really are are you know basically tickle top speed more often, um, throw the med ball, uh, get really high quality warm ups in, talk to them about recovery, scrutinize their workloads, um, give them great manual therapy, you know whatever it is they need on that front. Look at the nutritional side of things, scrutinize blood work. Like we do a lot of that stuff, and it's it's served us well. Well, because, I mean, like you said, it's got to be the the fine art has to be when you can even give them that stimulus and that adaptation within a baseball season, right? Because Steve talked about it, like how hard it is to even train when you're on the road because it's not always the same accommodations. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think Major League Baseball has done a good job of, you know, they kind of standardize what's available in, in road weight rooms now. I mean, certainly the minor leagues are a lot different than the Major League weight room. But, yeah, you're never going to get like this – pristine opportunity to do everything that you want when you're on the road and also it's it's tough i think people so let me let me backtrack so i, I have a lot of friends that work in the nba the nfl i mean we have, we have former intern that won the stanley cup last year with the vegas golden knights hey, i talk to these guys like pretty regularly and when i speak to people in different sports my, my own business partner is the massage therapist for the dolphins and when i talk to these guys when someone's a little bit banged up in every other sport you can find a day Right. In the NFL, if you miss a game, you, you basically bought yourself 13 days to, to recover, right? Yeah. You go to the NBA, they don't play nearly as many back-to-backs. NHL, same thing. So, like, if you pull a guy out of the lineup for a night, you can buy them three to four days really, really quickly. In Major League Baseball, it's different. You have a, you have a game that's at, you know, 7.05, and a guy, you know, gets hit by a pitch. You know, it takes 95 off the elbow, and it falls up on it. You might have a 1 o'clock game the next day, and you have to make a decision in that moment, like, is this – you, know, you get an x-ray on it, you see where it's at, and, you know, the hard part is the rosters are so small in Major League Baseball relative to what you need that you, you have to really take a, a perception on this. Like, all right, do I get a fresh body in here tomorrow and put this guy on the IL, or is it a situation where we can bring him back really, really quickly? So um, baseball is just so different. You, you can't buy time because you, you none of that. You might be, like, literally flying to the next city right after that game. Yes. Um, so we, we, at one point this year, we played 48 games in 51 days. Um, and, and so... You know, historically, you'll have one or two months in the calendar where you might only get two days off. Um, so the Major League Baseball season, it's, you know, I always say it's, it's roughly 200 games in 230 days when you count spring training, um, then what happens during the regular season, and if there's postseason, that's February 12th to October 31. Um, so it's a, it, you know, people call it a grind, and I'm not sure I love that term, but I, I get where it comes from because it is just a, it's a long course, and it's a, it's a, it's a collection of challenges that you really don't see in any other sport. How do you advise them on sleep and nutrition then with all of those barriers they have to deal with? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's multifactorial. Like, it's, it's having great people that do that. We have, you know, awesome dietitians. We have awesome performance science department that, you know, pull sleep schedules for our guys. You know, there are discussions that go into, like, when we travel, um, you know, whether you fly directly after a game or the next morning. Like, those are always, you know, questions that come about. But, yeah, we had, we had a point last year we played three games in 30 hours in two different time zones, um, which is a pretty hard thing to do if you look at a doubleheader and then travel after the game to the next one. So um, that, that probably happens you know, once a year, give or take, where you get like a Saturday rain out, you got to play a doubleheader on a Sunday and then play the next night somewhere else. So it's, um, 
yeah, it's a it's a it's a challenging dynamic, and you know I think the hard part too is that schedule was designed many many years ago when players weren't doing what they do now. Like players did not run as fast, jump as high, throw as hard, swing as hard, you know, 20 years ago as they do now. The the, the athleticism, and, and you've seen this across all sports, where you know in the NFL, I've I've heard people describe it as like a car accident on every play, um, just people going so fast and running into each other. I've seen like elite tennis up close, like guys hitting balls. 140 miles an hour on serves like you're, you're guessing all of them um and the the raw athleticism has just taken these games to crazy levels um and we you know unfortunately in a, in a sport like baseball sometimes that performance is limited by something really small like a, a tiny little ligament on the inside of your elbow is you know what holds the keys to the kingdom with respect to whether you can throw 100 miles an hour you know you know every other day for an entire season you talked a lot about, you know, different metrics and speed. So I kind of do want to ask you about baseball analytics. And again, from a super high level, not what you guys, things like that. But is it, has the pendulum swung too far? Because I feel like, again, as an outsider, you know, every money ball was this. And then it was, okay, analytics this. And then it was, you know, even in sports tech nowadays in our industry. Like, how far is too far? And... Um, how do you not get information overload because there are so many choices out there? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's a it's a broad question, but necessarily broad, like because I think you hear the term analytics, and some people have like this guttural reaction favorably or unfavorably, you know, to it in the context of the baseball world. And uh, what I, what I can say is that the, the data that I have at my fingertips on a daily basis makes me exponentially better at my job than I would be without it. And so for me, the the net positive is is way, way, way better. I think where, where we get into trouble with analytics is we become too reliant on it, right? If you, if you look at a player just as a collection of numbers in front of you, yes. and you don't, you don't appreciate how you know, that player might uh, you know, have struggled because of an injury and you just didn't talk to him about it and understood that or an approach change. Like we saw a major league hitter not, not too long ago who had been a guy that just hit the ball to the opposite field a ton. Like had a very, you know, kind of an approach that worked really, really well for him. The guy, Major League All Star, signed with a new team, and they basically like, we want you to hit to the pull side for power. And it, you know, it really changed his swing. It changed the way he looked at everything. It was a, a total difference maker. So the assumption would be like that he'd had a, you know, a dramatic regression in his capabilities or anything like that. And really, it was an approach change that, you know, then became kind of like a swing mechanics change. And it, 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 it he was a shade of him former self. So a lot of it was like reverse engineering these guys back to what they were. And that's where the data can be so helpful in, in the strength and conditioning realm is, hey, what were you doing when you were really good? Like, let's go back and let's look at some of that stuff. And what I find myself doing a lot is we have we have so many outcomes, right? We have exit velocities. Um, yes. You know, we have pitch spin metrics. Spin velocities too, yeah, right? Yeah, you got spin rate, you got spin axis, you've got horizontal and vertical break, you've got extension, you've got horizontal and vertical release height. I mean, obviously you've got velocity. You have so many different things, and you, and you have more video than you ever could imagine. Um, you know, we can we can pull video on you know really any player in any game in professional baseball and go and look at it, and that, you know, that's super helpful from a drafting standpoint and all that. And and what you're ultimately using all that information to do is try to try to recreate when they were at their best. We we can scrutinize that better than ever before. And you know, you know, Steve's a a, a close friend, and we talked about Steve helped out with you know the Falmouth Commodores in the Cape this summer. And, oh, nice. Just, just talking about like him being involved, like he's, he's coaching and he's excited about it and wants to stay involved in the game. And, you know, you realize how much easier, you know, you don't have nearly as much video capability there. 
so it's, it's it's a lot harder to coach when you don't have this stuff. Like I realized we did it for a long time. And <laughs> I, I look back on like what we were doing in like 2010, 2011, whatever it is when these these numbers and technological advancements weren't available to us. Like it kind of keeps me up at night. I think about the guys that really could have helped who, you know, maybe didn't make it to the big leagues that could have if we had been able to teach them a better slider or, you know, figured out why like, the you know, they kept cutting their four seam or something like that. Now we have you know, a $7,500 camera that can look at this thing in like total slow motion. And it was, it was very cutting edge. I think 2016 world series was the first time that they kind of like rolled it out and fans could see like what it was. And now they're commonplace. Like, you know, guys don't throw a single bullpen without that stuff on them now. So the game has just surged forward so much in the last, you know, seven to eight years. And it's, you know, it's really benefited pitchers way more than hitters. And that's why, you know, batting averages have gone down and it's, it's, it's much harder to score runs. And so you saw the adjustments to the game with them, you know, taking away the shift and, you know, bigger bases and reducing the number of, you know, step offs that pitchers can do to hold runners. They, they want to bring athleticism back in the game. They want more contact. Um, so it is a, it's a, it's a different game now. Pitch clock as well. It's just much more fast moving. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. <clears throat> Has the pitch clock been something that you, that also kept you up at night? Like, man, how can I make sure these pitchers, their arms are prepared for it for the um, increased density of the work? Yeah, I mean, I, I put a lot of thought into it over the offseason, certainly with our guys, we we tried to simulate it as much as we possibly could, bullpens and things like that. Um, you know what I'll say is I I can count on one hand the number of times I've heard guys complain about it. Um, you know, and I, I talk to a lot of different players from a lot of different organizations. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we, we, we kind of expected to see this massive surge in pitcher injuries. You know, maybe there's some guys that were deconditioned that weren't ready for it. Um, but you know what it was for me? It was, I think, a more remarkable la- lesson that, that work capacity is incredibly skill-specific. I mean, I mean, everything is skill-specific, right? You might have amazing balance as a hockey player, but if you went to ballet, you'd be terrible at it. And... I don't know if you remember when Lance Armstrong start, stopped cycling, like he, he became a marathoner. He was actually a, a pretty average marathoner. In yeah, it wasn't very good, right? Yeah. yeah like these, these world, you know, class VO2 max tests on uh, on cycling. But um, when he actually started running, there's obviously like different joint. Said action. principle, yeah. yeah. yeah and, and work capacity is probably the place where it is. So what it speaks to is I don't think going out and just running lots and lots of poles or doing a bunch of like bike sprint intervals was what was going to help them. Just because the actual pitch itself takes, you know, two seconds to execute, and then it's, you know, stand around for the next 13 seconds and deliver one. I think it had to do with just like, hey, when you're throwing your bullpens, make sure that you're like executing this in a timely fashion. And that's a that's actually a kind of a challenging thing to push on them in the off season because so many guys are working on stuff. So a lot of times they throw a pitch, they want to hear feedback from the pitching coach, they want to look at, you know, the iPad that's next to them to see what TrackMan is is showing them. Um, so, you know, you, you have to figure out where it all fits in. But um, I, I can't tell you that we saw a, a giant injury, you know, increase because of the pitch clock. Um, fastball velocity was up in baseball again, you know, just like it has been every year for the last 20-something years. Um, so I, I don't think it's it's altered, you know, pitchers in a lot of ways. I think it's made the game more efficient. And, and like, frankly, like the, the feedback in general across the board was like, oh my gosh, these games go so much faster. It's, it's great. Um, 
like I had a during one of our spring training games while the game was going, I had a meeting with another one of our staff members. We started in the sixth inning, we talked for thirty minutes, and the game ended. <laughs> it was like we just played, you know, like three or two and a half, three innings in thirty minutes. It just it flew by, um, and I I never expected that was the case. So it was a, it was a good eye opener, and you know it gets it gets outfielders off their feet. They're not standing around in uncomfortable cleats for you know an extra three hours a week. It you know it's definitely shortened it for the better. That's awesome, and that's actually something that Stevie and I did talk about because I had just a theory. I was like, all right, let's work. Let's take basic you know, strength and conditioning principles. Let's work above the demands. Let's work below the demands. Hey, when you're throwing a bullpen session, like maybe you can't. You have to treat it like a, an outing. Like, hey, we're going below the demands. You're pitching every 10 seconds. You don't get to see it until at the very end. Yeah. Sit down. We'll talk about it. Then go do it again. Yeah. Um, and that's that's how I would go about doing it, like – as an outsider, right? Like, <laughs> we played a um, a, a six forty start last night, and, and we won nine four, I believe it was, and the game ended at nine twenty two. That's awesome. So that, I mean, that's you know thirteen runs and you know two hours and forty minutes for a game. Like it's one of the longer ones. You know, there have been games that have been like right at two hours, um, but you also think about the trickle down effect. Is like that's a team that can you know, get on the road and, and, and fly, you know, and, and instead of getting in at 4 a.m., maybe they get in at 2 a.m., um, something like that. And then, it's, to be honest, for the fans, it's, it's a family that can get their kids in bed on time. That's um, awesome, yeah. it's, it's a really big deal. Like, you know, you got kids that can stay up and watch four innings on a school night instead of, you know, only being able to see the first inning or something like that. So I do think there's, um, you know, there's some benefits. It just pushes out a little bit of the dead time in there. And, and the feedback you know, honestly, has been pretty good. There were some, you know, people who were struggling with it early on, but I, I feel like they've worked out the kinks pretty well, and it's it's made a better quality product. That's unbelievable. Um, I did not know about the the tennis background, and I kind of then want to talk about: Did you ever? Was your injury? Was it a you know tennis elbow? Was it an, an an elbow injury? And you were like, hey, let's look above below the joint, and that's kind of was the genesis of sturdy shoulders. Um, and if this is something you already covered, please, I apologize. And no, I um, it was a shoulder, um, and I had, I, I was a, I was a dying breed. I was a, I was a serving volleyer, um, so I was a much better doubles player, and um, I had kind of this big like, externally rotated abducted kick serve that I would kind of hit behind my my head. So I, it required a ton of scapular upper rotation in combination with a lot of shoulder external rotation, just in a vulnerable position. So I was, I was effectively creating a classic internal impingement injury mechanism. What I wound up with was just a, a chronic undersurface cuff tear, which is what we see. Like in a general population, you see issues on the top side of the rotator cuff, so the bursal side. And in the, the overhead athlete population, you basically get beating up on the underside of the cuff tendons. And as, as you often see with these shoulder issues, um, if it's a partial thickness tear, it, it actually can hurt more than if it's a full thickness tear. You'll see a lot of people with full thickness rotator cuff tears that, that really are asymptomatic. And I'll, I'll finish that part of the story in a second. but. Um, yeah, for me, it was it was a really constant thing. Um, really, I, I played through it like my junior and senior year, never quite got better um, to the point that like I actually was going to college to play soccer instead of tennis because I just didn't want to deal with the shoulder Jeez. stuff anymore. Um, but anyway, long story short, like you know, I wound up not deciding to play college soccer and, and I continue to work at this tennis club. And it got to be, um, you know, kind of the four years later, really, it, it kind of plagued me on and off throughout my, my college career, even when I wasn't super active and, um, you know, on the tennis side of things. So I finished my, uh, my undergraduate career. Um, basically that summer, it was pretty bad. It was keeping me up at night and all this and doc scheduled surgery for it. I'd been through bouts of physical therapy that 
just hadn't gotten better. And, and in hindsight, the reason it didn't get better, like it was more like here are the exercises, go do them, as opposed to here's how you do them correctly. There wasn't manual therapy. There wasn't a whole lot of counseling on, you know, here's how you uh, modify your training to, to work in conjunction with these, um, you know, these rehab exercises. So I, um, I left for my, my grad school start in 2003. Basically, I had shoulder surgery scheduled for my first day after my, my, my first semester. So I was going to take my last exam, drive home, and go to the OR the next morning. And um, so I said, you know what? I, I, and I moved to the University of Connecticut mid-August mid that year. And I'm like, I'm just going to mess around and try to figure this out on my own. Like, I, I clearly haven't done it, you know, with other people's help. So what have I got to lose? Um, and so I overhauled my training, did things a lot different. I got away from like back squatting, went to like front squatting, the safety squat bar, did a bunch more, you know, horizontal pulling, you know, pulled back on benching, did more like landmine pressing, stuff like that. And found a good manual therapist that was right down the street from the University of Connecticut. Kind of, you know, he's a big ART guy when, when ART yeah. was kind of like oh, yeah. new and sexy. And um, sure enough, like shoulders just started feeling better and better. You know, it, it went in stages, right? I didn't wake up in the middle of the night with pain. And, you know, and then it was, you know, the functional capacity was a lot better. And so I called my surgeon on Halloween and I canceled the surgery. And, you know, that was 2003. It's, it's 2023 and I still haven't had it operated on or, or anything like that. And I'm, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty highly functional with it. I went on, I, I benched over 400 in powerlifting. I can play catch with our guys whenever I need to. But what was really fascinating about this, this is, this is actually the best part of the story. Um, so I, we, our, our staff in Massachusetts would play in like a, a co-ed softball league in the summers. And the end of the season was like an all-day tournament, like where you got your seed and you had to win like four games in order to win it. Um, so it's kind of just like, all right, carve out this, this Saturday and be ready to go out and you know, bring a lot of water and a bag of lunch. And so we went out and played. We went to the championship. We lost. And I played third base in four straight games. And what was fascinating about it was like everything felt good, chucked the ball across the diamond. And after our last game, I went directly to one of our athletes' 30th birthday. And adrenaline wore off. I reached down to get a bottle of water and a cooler, and I heard a pop in my right shoulder. And it was like, whoa. And it, it hurt pretty good for like a week, and I've had no pain ever since. So I think what I did in that day, I took my partial thickness cuff tear, and I turned it into a full thickness cuff tear. I haven't had imaging since, but it hurt for about two weeks, and it's been better. So you, you probably had a buddy that's ruptured an Achilles or a patellar tendon or something like that. And they've dealt with like chronic tendinopathy and then they finally rupture it and it doesn't hurt at all. It's like, oh, wait, what just happened? But they have zero pain. And, and obviously in those situations, you've got to reattach it because you're not very highly functional when your, your knee or your Achilles is detached. But in a shoulder, you've got, you've got four rotator cuff tends. So if one of them just pops off, you know, it retracts over time, but you have, you know, the ability to kind of work around it. So um, I'm, my hunch is that I now have a full thickness rotator cuff tear you know, it was two weeks of kind of crankiness, you know, I don't know, six years ago. And it's been good to go right now. I, I play catch most days of the week with somebody. I, I demonstrate exercises all the time. I, you know, I, I lift four days a week and it's, it's no problem. Do you have to change how you throw or what? Uh, I, let's just say I never had really what you would consider an elite arm action. I kind of throw strength coach cutters anyway, but no, I mean, in my long tossing, you know, 300 feet or throwing off the mountain, no. But I'm often I'm playing catch with guys during like return to throwing programs or something like that. So it's you know I play catch with Steve a couple times on a on a on a weekend when he needs to get a throwing session in and the family's traveled or something like that. But yeah, I, am I pushing it? No, but 
my hunch is that you would actually probably see a lot of shoulders that are way uglier than mine um, if you looked at some of the really veteran major leaguers that have thrown for a long time. Typically what you see in old throwers is they, the cuff chronically fails over the course of time and um, they, they're able to manage it. So that's why you, you see a lot of crazy things on MRIs that aren't necessarily clinically significant. Now, when you have guys that are rec recovering from things, are you then trying to change the arm slot action or are you like, hey, let's just reestablish what they had or how do you go about that? Um, it depends. Um, you got to remember there's always a drift, right? You, you have these, these outcomes where, all right, say vertical release height, right? If you get a guy to, you know, hinge a little harder, sit into his back hip, his vertical release height is going to come down, right? If you get a guy more up-tempo, get moving down the mound with your delivery, your vertical release height is going to come up, right? Um, you know, and there's going to be similar changes that take place in, you know, extension, all these different metrics. And what you're going to find is, like, these major league players, like, every pitch is not the same. Like, things just deviate here and there. So you'll see guys that drift. Their vertical release height might come up 0.2, go down 0.2 over the course of a season. So there's, there's actually way more variance than the, the casual fan probably appreciates. Um, so when you talk about, like, changing arm slot, like, there are times when you'll do that. My rule of thumb is you always want to coach upstream, you know, looking what people are doing early in their delivery. Same with, the, you know, like, you know, swings and hitters is, you know, what does the hip load do? I think we see way too many people that, that try to change arm action when in reality sometimes the arm action is bad because the direction from the back hip is like that. So a classic example is a guy who gets really, like, inverted, elbow climbs a lot. Often that's a kid who, who has like kind of a drift in his center of mass towards third base as a right-handed pitcher, where if you, you actually teach him to be a little bit more linear to the plate, the arm has more time to actually get into a good position. So I'm never a big advocate of changing arm actions. Um, most of that, in, in my opinion, is very, uh, it's very ingrained by the time we get high-level athletes. You know, maybe you change it with a, you know, a nine-year-old that's learning how to play catch. You know, how do you take the ball out of the glove? How do you even hold a four-seam? Um, but I think later on, your, your solutions are, you know, are more look at the lower half and see what direction is being created from it. How often is it the front hip versus the back hip? Like they don't want to land on the front leg versus they're not pushing off the back leg? So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an inverse relationship. Um, so there's the, the more you're in the back hip, generally, in other words, the slower you are down the mound, the more aggressive you can be with that lead leg block. Conversely, if you're a guy that gets really aggressive, you get down the mound fast, you're generally going to be softer on that front leg. And there, there are major leaguers who are successful in both ways because big leagues is all about just, you know, being unique, being deceptive, getting guys out and all that. So there's, you know, there's no one way to do it. The research is a little bit suggestive of the fact that if you're a little softer on the front leg and you get down the mound a little bit more, you're not going to throw as hard, or as hard, but you generally tend to be a little bit healthier. Um, conversely, if you tend to be a little bit more of like just get that front foot down and go, you know, that lead leg blocking creates more velocity. Um, so you just got to find the, the, the delivery that works best for you and what works with your pitch profile and all that because it's been done – you know, different ways. Justin Verlander is a very aggressive lead leg block. He's a guy who's, you know, pitched up to 101 in his career. You know, Corey Kluber is a guy who gets way down the mound and has a little bit more of a softer front side. But, you know, he's won two Cy Youngs with, like, pinpoint command, throwing in lanes, you know, without having to pitch it, you know, 98 to 100. So different strokes for different folks. My God. And, again, from a 10,000-foot view, how different are their – how do you train them in the weight room differently? Do you need to account for that? How does that work? Yeah, it's actually funny you say this because I had this conversation with, with a big leaguer yesterday. Is um, you know, I, I think you always try to create context 
here, here's how this exercise allows you to get to this position in your delivery, some of that stuff. Um, you know, but I think, you know, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, you know, I would say there are different ways of batching athletes. You, know, you have guys who are wide in fraternal angles, narrow in fraternal angles. You have guys that are hypermobile. You have guys that are tight. You have guys that are, you know, left and right-handed even create some complexities. You know, you're not going to see a lot of right-handed guys with low left shoulders, right? You'll occasionally see maybe a left-handed guy with a low left shoulder. You'll see a ton of right, right shoulders that are really low in any major league locker room. Um, there's just a normal asymmetry and certain guys, you know, re reaffirm it more if you're familiar with some of the posture restoration principles and all that. So um, we have a lot of different ways to batch guys. And I think, you know, some of like our, our force velocity characteristics, whether it's on force plates, Proteus, that can tell us a lot more as well about whether athletes are, you know, are they very, very elastic? Some of these like fascially driven athletes tend to be at your narrow infrasternal angles. Those are the guys like you, you, you have them squat 400, they smoke it, you give them 405, they get buried, right? They don't have the ability to grind. They're just very elastic. Um, and then conversely, you have these wide guys, you know, they tend to be very hingy. They want, they need to work linearly and just optimize, you know, rotational capacity. Those guys, give them lots and lots of loading they get good for a while and then eventually it starts to work against them so you have to work harder to you know basically uh preserve their rotational capacity so you know ultimately it, it, it's something different for everybody um and it, it changes over the course of a training career particularly as you know as they age and you know accumulate more wear and tear you got to be a little bit smarter about it but um yeah it's a it's a it's a great question it's a hard one to answer succinctly unfortunately it's all good um another question that i had about the baseball world and again, coming as a mainly football guy that's worked with a lot of different other athletes, but my quarterbacks, we would, I gave them tons, and kickers, punters too, tons of leeway in the weight room. Like, hey, if based on your training age, if the rest of the team was doing a barbell snatch or a dumbbell snatch or a barbell jerk, dumbbell jerk, we they had the choice to either do it, do the barbell or the dumbbell, the opposite of whatever they wanted, or we would do some sort of jump. Um, I feel like the word snatch or jerk or over, like we didn't even do, we didn't do cleans with the football team there. And that's a whole nother side conversation, but snatches, jerks, anything overhead or benching, those seem like kind of cardinal sins in baseball. And again, my outsider's brain was like, Hey, if they're going to live overhead, let's get them strong overhead. Here's a decent way to do it. Um, Yay, nay! Like, would somebody just look at me like you're, a re you're like you're crazy for even trying to do that? Yeah, I um, I would say it's uh, it's a hard question to answer, and and the first reason is one is if that's a 16 year old kid that's playing three sports, I don't really have an issue with it, right? These are these are movement competencies that you want them to learn, all that stuff. The game obviously gets more specialized as time goes on, right? So, um, I think I think the question you have to ask yourself is, does the benefits conferred from this exercise outweigh the potential downside of it and and can i get the same favorable training effect from this um in a, in a less risky manner so i'll, I'll give the example we use, we use landmine split jerks with guys all the time right landmine press is kind of like a pseudo overhead press if you look at the angle of the bar like it'll blow your mind how many people that can overhead press and can't bench press can go in landmine press but like in i'll sorry to interrupt you but from your talk like yeah. you've specifically taught them to do it kind of like that you yeah. and to really lean and press into it to get that scapula movement so yeah. kudos to you on that yeah i mean it's a little bit of a, a, a of a difference I, I think it has a lot to i mean here's the benefits of overhead pressing right is that scapula can move as free as it wants right the challenge with with a true overhead press whether you're doing like a 
you know, a dumbbell jerk or barbell jerk or whatever. It's like, you got to go directly against gravity. Like it is, it is 100% straight up and down. So you're going to have way more recruitment of the shoulder flexors. You're just going to have to compete directly against that. Landmine press obviously gets you at probably like this, you know, this 45 degree angle. So the question then becomes like, why not just do an incline press? The challenge with an incline press is your scaps are scaps can't move. They're, fi man. they're fixed to a bench, right? So first off, they can't move. In fact, we're coaching them, you know, to not move. But the other thing I'll tell you, and Mike Robertson actually just put a really good video up on this, is like anytime you get back on a bench with weight downward, what using like a barbell bench as an example, like think about what you're doing is you're compressing the rib cage front to back, right? Yeah. So that might be perfectly fine if you have like a narrow infrasternal angle guy, maybe one of those like really fashionably driven six foot three, 175 five pound athletes where you just desperately got to put 20 pounds on them. <laughs> if you get your like guy who's 220 already put together, you compress him. Go check his rotation after that set. And, and don't just check like shoulder internal rotation or something like that. Go check thoracic rotation. Even look at his hips. You'll, you'll actually see that when you compress them like that, there is, a, there is a price to be paid. So I always come back to like, hey, can they do this exercise and leave the gym today with as good or even better motion than they walked in? Because rotation is king in a, in a, in a baseball population. Um, like you take that away and they're going to go somewhere else to find it. So um, I think all too often, like, ah, you know, this is nothing. It's a small percentage of their training volume. But like I, I did my master's thesis on unstable surface training. And we found that even 2 to 3% of training volume on unstable surface training, like attenuated changes in, in, in power outputs and, and strength measures, like... That's a big deal. So, you know, your body is constantly adapting to whatever stressor you throw at it. Um, so I think it's important for us just to be like mindful of like, what is the exercise selection that doesn't just deliver a favorable outcome. Hey, scapular upward rotation, upper extremity hypertrophy, whatever it is, but also minimizes, you know, the, the potential risk that they may be encountering. No, that's, as you were talking about that, the thing that I thought of instantly was another guy, Boyle, who is in the private sector world, went in major league baseball um one of his talks though was about like okay if you're always doing rotation how much of it in the weight room needs to be more rotation versus anti-rotation how do you handle that complexity for any of our listeners who do work in the baseball world yeah so here, here's something i'll tell you is um everybody responds <clears throat> excuse me to the, th the stress of throwing slash swinging differently right so we have guys that throw a baseball and lose shoulder external rotation. We have guys who lose and throw a baseball and lose shoulder internal rotation. I think the problem is a lot of those studies, they look at averages and they should be looking at standard deviations and outliers uh. where you see these guys. So uh, case in point, Mike Reinold was a, um, a co-author on a study in 2009 that looked at um, range of motion changes after pitching in professional pitchers. And so they basically showed there was a, you know, an average loss of internal rotation and elbow extension all well and good, right? Not, nothing you would be surprised at when you look at this large sample size. What was interesting was how big the standard deviation was. It was like 190, 191 degrees of total motion. So internal plus external rotation yeah. in that shoulder. And then you had, you had guys that were probably in the 160s and you had guys that were probably up in the 230s. So you had these hypermobile guys that they weren't losing any motion. They were becoming more unstable after <laughs> throwing. Those are the guys that you're worried about subluxing or tearing ligaments. And you had guys that would lose a lot of motion, not just like internal rotation. They could be losing ER. Um, they could be using, losing shoulder flexion. Um, so it's just one of those things where you do all these things. You throw a baseball at a high level. There's a ton of shoulder, external, and internal rotation, but guys still lose it. 
Um, so like to the comment, all these guys are rotating all the time. You know, do we really need to do it? We're like, I think we need to do something to make sure that it sticks around. Um, I think we need to consider, can we train it at a different point on that force velocity curve? Um, and true, can we, tra can we train it in the opposite direction, right? If they're, if they're right-handed hitters, like you got to left rotate a little bit, right? Uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's really, really important. And, uh, you know, I think looking back, you know, I wish I had known what I know now about, you know, different people will respond based on their compression strategy. So if, you know, if our listeners haven't filled, you know, checked out some of Bill Hartman's um, work, I think it's, it's really, really useful. Narrow versus wide ISAs, like they will lose motion somewhat predictably based on what their, their skeletal archetype is. Um, Rick Franzbaugh at the University of, or Clemson has, has done yeah. a great job with this. Well, he's an awesome podcast for me talking about it and it impacts the way that they move. So I, I, I generally never am, am um, like, steadfast reductionist like this athlete shouldn't do this i'm way more i guess i'm methodology agnostic like i i look at it and say here's the athlete that's in front of me here's what i see on them and and these are the best courses of action not like i love this drill let's go use it with everybody um again hearing you say all of this and being an outsider i'm thinking okay baseball you could almost be very much like a track and field thrower bonder chuck um because I feel like from any as strength coaches hearing, okay, um, uh, a slightly heavier implement versus a slightly lighter implement, like you see that in the world of baseball and, and golf more, correct? Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor, Team Builder. If you have any online training platform needs, Team Builder is the go-to place. Team Builder has the ability to integrate with velocity-based training tools. They have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. Yes. Um, so the first thing I'll say is I, I think the, um, the aggressive look to like javelin throwers to really help baseball players is, is a really tricky one to make. Um, don't get me wrong, I, I think we can learn a lot from every sport. And I'm I didn't, gonna, sorry, I didn't mean to think that, but like, hey, we're going to throw a heavier implement and a lighter yeah, implement. Like, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. I, I think the nature of a five ounce baseball is such that you can get to more extreme range of motions, right? And so as a result, it's probably leaves a an elbow more vulnerable. We know you don't lay an arm nearly yeah. as much when you're throwing a heavier implement. Um, and, and so looking at like a, a quarterback, right? A football is obviously heavier than a baseball. And you very rarely see UCL tears in football players. You know, you, you get a couple here and there, but it's usually like kind of collision related. Somebody grabs an arm as you lay it back or a fall on an outstretched arm kind of contributes to it. And, and, and more often than not, they can be managed, you know, uh, conservatively over the course of a, of a career pretty well. So, um, you know, I do think there's something to be said for that. Um, but weighted balls are, are definitely hot topics in the baseball community. You know, they do seem to, I mean, the evidence suggests that they increase injury risks, but they also increase oh. velocity. And we also have to figure out, like, is, is every weighted ball program created the same, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. the people who are drawn to using weighted balls are the people that are just drawn to trying anything and doing aggressive throwing programs. And kind of like the, the result of any one-size-fits-all program is 25% of guys get hurt, 25% of guys get worse, you know, 25% of guys maybe get a little bit better, and 25% of guys stay the same, you know? So it's just... It, you got to look at where you kind of fit on, on that bell curve. Um, but, you know, we use weighted balls. You know, oh, it's just okay. a matter of how do you use them, you know, how, what the volume is, what the intensity, what time of day are you using them. Like we have some guys that make like 
three throws with like a two pounder against the wall just to kind of get loose. They may do some reverse throws, and so not all drills are created equal. Um, so I think we I think we need to just again take a step back and not just vilify the implement. I think we need to think about like how is it actually used, and and that's where you realize you can borrow from those other populations. But, but make no mistake about it, like javelin throwers have plenty of throwing related injuries. There just aren't as many javelin throwers, so you don't hear about them nearly as much. But they blow out ligaments all the time. The first Tommy John I ever saw was a javelin thrower. Their shoulders are messy. Their their lead legs are, you know, their knees are not in great shape. Um, you know, I've seen enough javelin guys over the years to realize that their injury histories are probably even more speckled than the baseball players I see. I had a girl at Towson who, as a freshman, um, tore lead leg ACL, landed dislocated elbow, right? Like, so, yeah. Like, but I did study some of the baseball population stuff on, you know, you know, working that elbow because it didn't have to get repaired. But 100 um, percent, you talked about it with throwing backwards. And I do remember hearing it either from your stuff or a different baseball person back in the day. Do you still do or did you ever do or does it hold water like throwing Frisbees to get the high velocity on the opposite direction or no? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a necessarily a training. <laughs> like just to warm up, maybe? Or is it just uh, like... It's it's more of like, hey guys, like you're you're tired of doing really regimented sprint work, like go out and throw the frisbee on the turf, like yeah, athletic, have some fun. I mean, heck, I, I like to do that myself. So yeah, it has. Uh, I don't think it has a, a crazy amount of of training, you know, validity to it, just because most guys don't throw the frisbee with like full blown rotation. It usually tends to be like more quick <laughs> or anything like that. So yeah, I would I wouldn't view it as like a a really like you know bold training initiative. Okay. Uh, I only got two more questions that I'll, uh, you know, respect your time, but, um, you know, you're a hundred percent in a, like you said, very high position with lots of different people that, you know, working together in communication. How do you hire? Like, what are kind of some of your just big rocks for our, um, directors and, um, high performance managers that are members and listeners out there? Yeah. I mean, I, the one thing I, I'll say this, and I don't want it to sound disparaging. Like I know you have a lot of young coaches that, that listen to this. Is unfortunately a lot of young strength and conditioning resumes are they're very homogenous. And what what I mean by that is they look very much the same, right? Most of them have an exercise science degree. They usually come with a, a letter recommendation from an academic department chair. Um, they usually list how they, their cover letter is all about how passionate they are, how they were a former athlete, and how they love this. Um, you know, then there's usually like a, a resume that shows, you know, they, they scooped ice cream in, in high school at some place and then they, they were a personal trainer at like their local YMCA and maybe there's an internship supervisor that wrote them a letter or something like that. The, the letter, they generally tend to always fall in that realm. Um, and I, I think what you want is, is you want to see people who have gone above and beyond, like people who have A, gone out and sought out you know, higher level education, things that weren't easy to get to, right? Anybody can do just like stuff in their hometown. It's a big deal, like move across the country for an internship or like volunteer your time, drive a couple hours to, uh, you know, when you see like college kids that have like spent money out of their own pocket to go to seminars and check these different things out. Like that, that speaks volumes um, for me in a lot of ways. So I, I always look for like ways that they can demonstrate that A, they have a big growth mindset and that, you know, this is someone that is going to be just curious and, you know, we're going to be able to invest in them and they're going to soak it up. But just as importantly, as they soak it up, they're going to start to see relationships. They're going to start to see ways where they can use it and, and make us collectively better because we want them to, to spread their wings and be successful. So that's really, really helpful. Um, and then I think, you know, obviously like a, a demonstrated ability 
to find value where other people miss it. And I've told this story before, but we had a, a, a kid, um, he played club baseball at Northwestern, and um, you know he's contemplating whether he's going like, to try out for the actual team or anything. Like Wonderful, wonderful kid. And trained with us for a summer in Massachusetts. And you know, as time went on, he's like, you know, I really would love to get a, a baseball operations internship with like a major league organization. He's, you know, he's studying economics, like really bright kid. And he's like, would you mind looking at my resume? And this is I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I'm like, sure, you know, bring it in. And he lists it all off. You know, it's like all his coursework and everything. And the last thing down at the bottom, he's like, uh, under like jobs, he's like, I, I made $40,000 in a summer buying and selling things on eBay. I was like, dude, put that at the top. Like that is the very definition of finding value where other people miss. Like he's like 12 and literally just like you know, buying widgets on, on, on eBay and then selling them for $40 more than he bought them for an hour later. Like he was just really, really good at it. And I'm like, that's what people are looking for. It makes you unique. It differentiates you. Um, so I think those are great. I don't think you can ever go wrong with like letters of endorsement or listing as a reference clients slash athletes that you work with. Um, I think those things are, are always really, really compelling for me. Talk to me about, you know, someone whose life you changed, who, who really, you know, swears by you and, you know, somebody you stay in touch with. Those things are, are really, really um, good things. And then obviously you want, you want someone that's going to be a great, you know, teammate, someone who's going to, um, you know, fit in with what you have in place. And um, so, you know, you listen for a lot of those things where, you know, my, my kind of walking away from a, an interview, I, I hate to say this, like it's either a hell yes or a hell no. Um, and I don't mean that in, like a, in a bad way in the sense that like I write people off right away or automatically say, yes, you're on to the next round of interviews or whatever it is. It's more like, is this what this person really wants to do? Um, and I remember uh, Mike Gambino is a, a good friend. Mike was the baseball coach at Boston College and he just, he just went on to Penn State um, and they had a great year at BC and he did an amazing job of building up that program. But when he first got to Boston College, I remember him saying to me, he's like, we don't want guys that just come here because they can't go to the University of Virginia. We want guys that want to be at Boston College and that line has always stuck with me. Like, I want people that want to be with us, not just like, hey, I put eight resumes in and I have to do this internship because, you know, I have an academic requirement. Like, I want to know why you want to be here. And if you can, you know, clearly illustrate that in an interview, you know, or in a cover letter, I, I think that goes a really long way. Amen. And then venturing into the world of private stuff and get 10,000 foot view. Yeah. Um, how Like any of our listeners out there that are, getting into it or have been into it what are some of your advice on on how you had done it just building up you know capital and clients and how does that process work yeah um you know and that's that's a, that's a probably an even bigger question but um you know i think it, it it relates a little bit to some of the scale stuff from earlier is you know when you start a business like first off like be fiscally responsible uh you know i was in one of those situations where i didn't want to borrow money um i, I kind of recognized i think early on I had a, a pretty good entrepreneurial slash accounting background. It's always easier to spend somebody else's money than it is to spend your own. Um, and I think when you borrow from a bank or a private financer, or, you know, a client that wants to loan you money, like it's, it, it's really easy to hemorrhage cash if you're not smart. And we both know that people make financial decisions for emotional and not necessarily rational reasons. Um, so for me, I was always pretty meticulous with finances and I understood it well. I mean, I, I actually had an accounting background. That's what I originally thought I was going to study in school. And I've got like five CPAs in my family. So that served me well. So I think that's one thing I've always done really well is we've been, we've been fiscally responsible and haven't gotten out of our skis and done silly things. Whereas I've seen people who have opened up 25,000 square foot facilities with eight different kinds of leg curls. And those, those guys are selling their equipment six months in because they can't even pay their air conditioning bills. Um, so I, I think that, you know, for me is a, 
is a really, really important message to deliver. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many different directions I could go on the, uh, on the private side just because there's a lot of lessons I've learned over the years. But I'll, I'll say this, like any operation, you know, kind of has several subdivisions of it. You know, it's how well do you generate leads? How well do you convert leads? Um, you know, how well do you retain leads or retain clients, I should say? And then how are your systems? And, and so I think the overwhelming majority of people think that it's always about lead generation. They want to hire like the best Facebook marker or they want to know like, how do I get people up in the door? How do I get people in the door? When in reality, they're not paying enough attention to where all people are going in the back. You know, like they're all walking out the back doors, you're bringing new clients in. So how's your retention? Conversion is a big one. Like, are you generating tons and tons of leads and then none of them are actually signing up? Like we have like a 99.9% .9 in conversion rate. People are very pre-sold on our businesses before they come in. So lead conversion is way more about just like the logistics of getting the evaluation scheduled, helping them with travel arrangements when they're, they're coming from another state to see us or something like that. Um, you know, retention is always a big thing in, in sports uh, because kids go in season and you kind of have to like re-recruit their business. You don't want them to disappear. So it's important to keep them in-house during season to get their training whenever possible and then also reactivate them when you know they come back from a two-week vacation or something like that. And then the last part is systems. Um, like I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen that just manage their business with they're, they're just oblivious to the numbers. Like I, I had a buddy that opened a facility in another part of the country and they were really struggling. Like one month he was like, I was like, all right, man, just, just send me like your, you know, your, your monthly numbers and let's talk through this. And they were grossing like $14,000 and spending 19. It's like, all right, this, this obviously isn't sustainable. And we pulled his numbers and you spend $2,000 a month on a towel service. I was like, dude, you're five grand in the hole. Wash your own towels. Like, don't send those out. Like, this is what you got to do. You got to bootstrap it for a while. It doesn't change the client experience. You got to sacrifice a half an hour of sleep once a week and, and do some laundry. Like, these are the things that it takes to get off the ground. And, you know, you got to be a little bit more uncomfortable. So I, I just don't think a lot of people really know their numbers. Um, and I'm, I'm really lucky that that's something we've done well in both places. Um, and, and it's allowed us to, to gradually expand instead of, like, just making these big jumps and, like, praying that people are going to continue to show up. Yeah, and that's why, like you said, you, you got things up and established for a while in Massachusetts before you went all the way down to Florida, right? We were we opened in 07 in Massachusetts, and, and Florida, we, we, we decided we were going to do it in 13, and then in 14, that, that fall, we opened up. And I, I'm still, you know, back and forth at, you know, during the year. I spend summers more in the Northeast, and, you know, it takes, it's, it's all about people, you know what I mean? The, you know, starting the facilities, getting people to show up, like buying the equipment, all that stuff, that's the easy part. Like the, the, the really the hard part is making sure that you have a, a team that is really unified with your vision of, of not just how you want to train people, but more importantly, the experience you want to deliver to clients. Like, you know, in our world, you know, you get it obviously in the college sector is like, you're still getting kids in a really impressionable time in their life. Yeah. And in those, in those formative years, I want to make sure that we have wonderful humans that are, that are the best part of people's day. Like, you know, and you know, if, 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 if I was to leave town and, you know, I, I hear from a parent like, hey, my, my kid walked into the facility and it was blaring gangster rap with F-bombs and Edwards and no one paid attention to them. And by the way, the roof was leaking and the floors were dirty and nobody was answering the phone. I'm like, that's not good. I mean, unfortunately, we've never gotten any feedback, anything like that. But people, athletes, everybody tends to drift. So you always need to be like cautious about having people in leadership roles that always understand what the 
what the standards are and how to hold everyone else accountable to the standards. So that's why, you know, people in leadership positions that you can trust and lean on, you know, are, are so valuable. I'm, I'm fortunate. Pete and John at our Massachusetts facility are, are awesome. We've got a you know, great staff up there that they, they work hand in hand with. And, you know, that's, that's ultimately what makes scale possible is, you know, having people that, that do a great job and complement your skill set um, instead of trying to replicate yourself. And, you know, you got you to lean on what they do well to, to, to basically match up with what you don't. Amen to that. Um, like I said, I want to respect your time. You are in season. Anybody that is uh, interested in following you more, we'll, we'll link it down in the show notes. But are there any specific uh, sites, places that they can get in touch with, you know, your teams? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, our, our facility is CressyPerformance.com. Uh, my personal website is EricCressy.com, and it's just Eric Cressy on all the socials. But um, the podcast would probably be the thing people would be interested in the most. Um, a lot of good content there. That's just the, uh, the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. So thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thank you very much for being on, and have a great rest of the day. Go get a dub today. Appreciate it.